1: Welcome to another episode in the Menopause series on The Emma Gunn Show. I'm revisiting my conversation with Dr. Anita Mitra. She is an NHS doctor who specialises in obstetrics and gynaecology. And in this episode, we discussed everything from why talking about women's health shouldn't be taboo, why tracking your cycle can be very helpful, not only in understanding your overall health, but in then noticing the changes that might imply perimenopause and menopause is on the horizon, what the menstrual cycle is, even how long it lasts and what you can expect to happen during various times in the month, and why the notion of balancing your hormones is ultimately a bit of a nonsense. Uh, So here she is revisiting the conversation that was originally published in August of 2020. It's Dr. Anita Mitra on The Emma Gunn Show. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Dr. Anita Mitra. She is an NHS doctor with a specialty in obstetrics and gynecology. She is known as the gynae geek uh, on social media. That's where you can find her. And she is also brilliant, a brilliant source of factual information and informative messaging around female sexual health around female health generally and around demystifying the topics of the vulva the vagina and many other things as we discuss in this podcast they really it really does seem like a nonsense that they are taboo when uh, understanding and being in tune with the health of our vaginas Can only be a good thing. So she is a brilliant source and a trusted source of information, which is why I wanted to get her onto the podcast. And she really didn't disappoint. I loved recording this episode because it's just so rich in her expertise. And after she explains exactly what that expertise is and what her background is, we talk about understanding your cycle, what your cycle actually is, when it starts, what happens in the first week, in the second week, in the middle, and how that might change the way that you feel. We also discuss things like hormonal contraception and the different options available and why something might be suitable for you and why something else might not. We also touch on the perimenopause and so many other things all with the objective of really giving you as much information as you need to be able to make informed choices about your own health, speak to um, a medical professional in a way that makes you feel comfortable and just really understand where you're at. I learned so much in this conversation with Anita because she just has the best way of communicating her expertise. It's just so, so easy to absorb everything that she says. And she has some really, really brilliant ways, as you will hear in the episode, of making um, her medical expertise really relatable and understandable. So anyway, we shall get into that. A couple of things. We did record this episode over the internet. And for some reason, there are about four or five instances where there's just a low mumbly rumbly sort of weird noise. I tried my very best to edit it out, but unfortunately I could not. So I hope that that doesn't distract from what Anita is saying. There is also about 45 minutes in, there's a wee bit of an interruption Uh, so you may think oh that felt like a bit of a jump but uh, I just edited out the postman delivering a parcel and stitched it back together in a way that I hope doesn't feel too clunky for you my most excellent listeners the links to Anita and to everything that we've discussed and of course her brilliant book she has an amazing book that everybody should read Um, that is all all of that information is going to be in the show notes but for now it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Dr. Anita Mitra onto the Emma Gunn Show. Dr. Anita Mitra, it is so genuinely wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. Any opportunity to talk about all taboo things and say the word vagina as often as possible.
1: (laughs) Well, this is it. It's about demystifying demystifying it, isn't it? And not making it taboo and making it completely okay and normal to talk about our sexual health, our vaginas, our vulvas, all of these things, because we need to it's important to be in tune with them. Yeah, it's important to
0: be in tune. And also, it's so important if you want to go and seek help about something, first of all, to realise that there is a problem. Um, And second of all, to have that confidence to actually go and speak to a doctor and say, hey, I think this isn't quite right. And I'm worried about it. Um, And I've seen over the years, just so many people who have really delayed coming to see a doctor, first of all, because they didn't realise that Something was abnormal because if your only understanding of what a period is, for example, is your own and you've never spoken to anyone else about it, you might think that it's completely normal to be unable, like, be completely unable to leave the house for the first two or three days of your cycle. And I had a lady who um, I once met after twenty years of sitting on beach towels during the first few days of her period because it was so so heavy. Um, and I actually first met her in A and E when she'd come in having collapsed and required a blood transfusion. And I said to her, um, "You know, why did you not go and see your doctor about this? Um, you know, not in a judgmental way, but I think it's really important for me to sort of understand what is going on in in somebody's head." And she said, "Well, you know, I, I thought this was normal um, because you know she'd never spoken to anyone about periods before." And then she said. I started to think it was maybe not normal, but then I was too embarrassed to go and speak to my doctor about it. And I think that's really sad because that's just one example of thousands and thousands of women who really suffer when there's actually a lot of things that we can do to help them.
1: And as regular listeners of this podcast will know, it is my mission to get experts in their field to come on and talk about subjects so that there is no room for, but what about this? It's, you know, it's expert, an expert delivering the facts. And so just to really talk about your your background, I mean, this, you are, uh, your speciality is obstetrics and gynaecology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've written a book about this, The gyny Geek. Mm-hmm. How, how were you drawn towards this area?
0: Well, um, I wanted to be a doctor ever since I was about two or three. Um, but, you know, growing up in the 80s, obviously I had a nurse's outfit, not a doctor's outfit because that's, you know, so, that's so like, you know, the gender um, bias that we all grew up with. Um, but there is a really early photo of me running around in my parents' garden, wearing my nurse's outfit, carrying my um, my doctor's, um, you know, like Fisher-Price doctor's bag. Um, and so I always wanted to be a doctor. And... I actually didn't get into medical school um, when I first tried when I was 18. And so this was kind of like my first um, failure really. And I would say that I've had lots of kind of setbacks throughout my career and I, you know, at the time it was like the worst thing that could ever happen to me. But, you know, looking back actually, it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. Um, So I went to medical, uh, sorry, I didn't go to medical school. I went to university and I did a science degree. And in that time, I had to do a a dissertation in my final year, and I chose to work in a research lab where we looked at the mechanisms of how certain food compounds um, have an impact on the development of cancers. And so this was really fascinating. Um, And I think it's really kind of shaped the kind of clinician that I am today, because I'm really, really still interested in how lifestyle impacts on our health. And that is something that I do talk about a lot um, in my book. Um, And it also was the first time that I worked with doctors who were also involved in research, who I didn't really realize that that was something that you could do. And it certainly wasn't something that I thought I wanted to um, do as a career, because, you know, all I thought was, I just want to be a doctor working in a hospital and, when you're young, you don't really know what the job really entails, do you? I mean, you can watch as much ER as you want to, um, but it doesn't really prepare you for what it's actually like. So I went to medical school and I graduated in 2011. And at that time, I thought I wanted to be a renal transplant surgeon, so someone who does kidney transplants, um, because I'd become involved in research into kidney transplantation um, during my time at medical school because of the fact that I had this background in research. And it was just actually luck that I ended up doing offers in as a medical student with a really, really motivated um, consultant who, you know, I was really terrified actually of doing that placement. And on the first day, my best friend said to me, she said, so we always had a ward partner, someone who we did our clinical placements with. And she said, Anita, why are you so quiet? Um, we were on the labor ward at the time. And I said, I oh, just, you know, I don't, don't really want to be here. I'm a bit scared. I don't really know what it's going to be like. And she's like, mm, OK, never heard you say that before. Um, but yeah, by the end of those um, six or seven weeks, I... I thought, wow, this is exactly what I want to do. Um, Because it's such a great mix of looking after people who are unwell, but also people who are well, and actually going through something that's completely normal. So pregnancy, you know, generally speaking, very, um, very well people um, you know, in healthcare, but because they're doing something that their body's designed to do, not necessarily because they have a disease. Um, And also, it's, it's such a it sounds a bit kind of cliche, but we get to work with people having the best and the worst day of their lives. And that's actually such an honor to to be involved in something that's so, you know, so crucial to that person, something they're going to remember forever. And it's really interesting because um, I, I had a lady and um, I was with her when she delivered her baby. I helped her during the labor. And this is just last week. And I had a mask on because you know obviously everything that's going on we're wearing masks all the time uh, and I was um I was suturing at the time so we sit between someone's legs for about 20 minutes and uh, you know I like to have my little uh, chat with them and she said doctor I really want to um I want to see you without your mask on because I'm going to think about you every day for the rest of my life because you've given me something that I've always wanted and that was just such a kind of like emotional moment for me because i thought you know what i'd done was nothing nothing heroic nothing out of the ordinary something that you know all doctors and midwives are doing every day up and down the country all around the world but that was just such a kind of like really crucial moment for her and it was just so touching that she said that to me and and that just kind of made me realize that we do such an important job and i think sometimes you know, we think, oh, it's just all in a day's work. But it's really important to remember how something that's so ordinary to us that we do every day is something that that one person is going to remember for the rest of their lives. And I think that also plays into the way that I talk to patients as well. And so um, just to sort of skip back, I ended up not getting into and training as well. <laughs> Classic. Uh, so I ended up doing a PhD and then getting into specialist training at the same time. Um, and so it's something that some doctors do um, research alongside medicine. Um, and so I was involved in research looking at the vaginal microbiome. So that's the bacteria and how that influences what happens in our, um, in our reproductive systems. In particular, my interest is in looking at cervical cancer and cervical disease and HPV. And during that time, I was working a lot in the colposcopy clinic. So this is, you know, a word that fills a lot of women with thread, <laughs> uh, because it's where you have to go if you have an abnormal smear test. And so again, this is a time when a lot of, um, particularly very young women, are coming to hospital and seeing probably for the first time a specialist. So not a GP, somebody who you know is a specialist. And it's something that's very sensitive and that we don't really understand and so at the time i was doing my colposcopy training as well so what that means is that we have a mentor um, so somebody who is um, fully trained in doing colposcopy and then we see cases with them and then eventually we get a little bit more independent Um, but after every session you do a debrief and i got on really well with the um the guy who's my mentor and still um, he still kind of mentors me career-wise now But I used to chat to him about the kind of questions that people would ask. And he's like, really? Someone asked you that? And this was the time when I thought, wow, you know, this is a really scary time for these patients. I need to really make them feel welcome. So often my consultations are quite chatty. And that's when I realized people really started opening up. And so I realized I could have these really incredible conversations. And they were often centered around things that were causing a lot of anxiety but we're actually quite normal. And just being able to have that conversation, people often, I mean, obviously we were scared coming to the, the appointment anyway, but then I realised that when we spoke about these kind of things, I could see this weight being lifted from these women's shoulders. And I just thought, wow, we, we need to, we need to do this more. And so that's when I realised that actually I needed to start talking about this online um, because I noticed that there was a gap in doctors using social media i saw lots of people who were sort of in the wellness world um personal trainers nutritionists um you know all sorts of really great people all using social media as a great way of sharing their amazing messages but i just thought hold on a second everyone's talking about health but there's no doctors doing this and i'm not saying at all that you have to be a doctor to talk about health but i think that you know you need that really like holistic view i i really think that modern medicine can really complement um, sort of complementary and alternative therapies and I think that we all need to come together and share our experiences and learn together and we can educate people in a much more thorough and holistic and compassionate way
1: uh,
0: and so that's what I did and I actually didn't really think anyone would be that interested I thought it would just be like my mum uh, who's my <laughs> best friend um, and a couple of my friends liking my um, posts but I just saw this huge conversation opening up and I started to get loads of people messaging me saying, thank you so much. I finally decided to go and speak to my GP about this. I finally decided to go for my smear test. Um, I sent your post to my friend and she found it really helpful. Uh, And so then I sort of realized the power of just having these really basic conversations. And also it really made me realize that what we think is important as doctors isn't always necessarily what's important to the patient and vice versa so I realized that when we started opening up the conversation listening so much more to our patients you can really provide a much better service
1: Mm. and I think one of the things that's come up time and time again uh, from listeners is um feeling that they aren't heard when they are explaining what they believe to be a hormone or a female health issue and I certainly don't want to bash GPs because I know the limitations that are on them and they have a a really difficult job but I think to to be able to find a forum or a place where they can feel understood or where they can see that scenario explained by someone like you can be so so helpful.
0: Mm. Yeah and I, I think that that's that's something I hear time and time again and I think also you know Being on social media, it does kind of like bring out the imposter syndrome in, doesn't it? Because in medicine is that, you know, there's always somebody who knows more about a topic than you do. And you always think, oh, I'm there's that other person who's more of an expert, maybe I shouldn't really be talking about this. But then I also think, you know, again, not sort of bashing any other doctors or people who are more senior than me, but I think that sometimes when you've been in your field for such a long time, you kind of forget that People don't know the terms that you're talking about. You know, I kind of compare it to like recently I just bought a house and I talked to my solicitor or my mortgage advisor and I'll be like, Ugh, I, don't, I really don't know what, what that abbreviation means. And I feel too really stupid to ask. And so it's exactly the same thing. Like, you know, that's me out of my comfort zone but needing advice from somebody who's an expert in that field. And that's how my patients feel Mm -hmm. i think it's really important not just to have the knowledge but also to kind of really get in the head of the person that you're trying to communicate with um and i think it helps that you know i'm obviously i like to think i'm young i'm not really that young anymore Um, you know but like a youngish female who's kind of grown up with social media but grown up with women's magazines and understanding where people get their health information from these days and understanding that the way in which you can maybe talk to somebody who's 26 is not the same that you might speak to someone who's 66. And just kind of knowing your audience Mm -hmm. really makes a difference when you're delivering um, health education. And that's something that I take into account both at work and when I'm using social media.
1: And one of the things I try to do on this podcast is direct people towards what I think are trusted, sound resources for expert information and so one thing I did want to discuss with you actually is it felt like a little while ago the wellness industry kind of hijacked women's health and by women's health I mean vaginas and sexual health and we all know about the jade eggs and the advice to steam your vagina which I mean Jen Gunter came on this podcast and made it quite clear that that wasn't the right thing to do but I'd be interested to know what your feeling is because somebody telling you to put a, a jade egg in your vagina for I don't know fertility or health or balancing or what have you when research shows that that could actually cause uh, invite bacteria or mm. upset the microbiome which obviously you've researched what's your reaction to that kind of stuff not only being online but being believed mm. and then how do you how do you put something out there to counter it and and show the actual evidence yeah so, oh gosh, I mean, I think
0: that if you've got the right PR campaign and you can make something look glossy and lovely, then you can market anything, can't you? And it, that's what has been done because if you look at a lot of these things, you know, you mentioned JDEX. I mean, there's no evidence whatsoever, but people really believe it. And I think it's down to the people who are also recommending it. And now the thing is that I'm not saying that people actively go out there to harm people. Mm. Um, But I think that, first of all, there is definitely this whole natural is better rhetoric, which isn't always the truth. Um, And, you know, I think that we have to remember that certainly with a lot of like supplements and herbal compounds, they're not regulated, um, and so, whilst I do believe that there is a definitely a role for, um, you know, complementary uh, medicines, I think that it, it you know, that becomes this sort of um, what's the there's just a bit of a clash between doctors and the wellness industry. And I think that I want to explain it from my perspective, in that I. I'm a regulated practitioner. So I have a a medical license from the General Medical Council or the GMC. And so our obligation to patients and the general public is to provide safe, evidence-based medicine. And so generally speaking, we work within guidelines, okay? And so guidelines are there to protect people and to make sure that there's some kind of, you know, conformity amongst what doctors are doing so that you should be able to go and see a doctor in Aberdeen and a doctor in London and a doctor in Manchester and they should all broadly speaking be offering you the same kind of treatment because you know we have to remember that you could get somebody who has this really fixed idea that that is what they want to do and that is the best thing and then they may not offer you what the best treatment is. So that's why we do have to work within guidelines but also it is then up to somebody to decide, you know, look, this is my expert field. This is something that I want to also discuss and offer to my patients. And so, for example, an example of that with me would be probiotics. Um, I believe that there is a role for probiotics um, for some patients. Okay. And that isn't part of the guidelines yet. But that is something that I am a specialist in, I feel that I can defend my position and opinion on that, and that's really important because somebody could report me to the GMC and say, Anita's gone completely rogue and she's not acting within the guidelines. And in order to keep the public safe, the GMC have to investigate me and decide whether what I'm doing is dangerous and whether, you know, my practice is defensible according to the the evidence that is there. And it does take time for new evidence to come into the guidelines. So that's really important to say. But so whilst that's something I may discuss individually with a patient, you will never ever find me online saying this is a probiotic brand that I think that all of you should be buying and using because it's so individual
1: Mm.
0: and I think it's really, you know, the day that you get those letters, doctor, in front of your name, you're so accountable and responsible to the public. And you, have, you I think it's really important to remember that people do listen if they hear the word doctor. And so you, you've got quite a position of power, and I think it's really important not to abuse it. Um, and so that's why I think that it's really difficult when you say, look, you, this practitioner wants everybody to be using this particular supplement well as a doctor I might think okay that sounds interesting but in order to really feel confident that I can recommend that to my patients I have to see evidence because of the fact that I am accountable for all of my actions and unfortunately a lot of practitioners are not registered and it doesn't mean that they're bad but it's important to understand where our point of responsibility goes back to.
1: Yeah. So if you see a social media post from uh, insert random celebrity here or wellness guru, which obviously is not a qualification, um, they are not held to any of those kind of standards or regulations. Totally. So they can just say whatever.
0: Yeah. If- absolutely. And and unfortunately, I think that you know. Women's health has become this kind of um, fad for the wellness industry and there are so many products coming onto the market and it really, I have to really take a deep breath Um, and thankfully we do have people like Jen Gunter who just doesn't care and just goes out and unleashes herself on everyone and I don't know how she has the bandwidth to be honest with you. Um, So my kind of way of going about it is being like, hey, so this is actually the science and this is what... um, we would recommend. But yeah, unfortunately, I've just had so many companies contact me saying, hey, we've got this amazing wellness brand. And we think it's really empowering for women. And I'm like, hold on a second, this product that you're marketing for people to wash their vaginas with is neither safe nor empowering nor necessary. But they get this great advertising campaign around it. and. It makes people think that they need to buy it. And this is the problem. People see products on the market and they think, oh, hold on a second, that's on the market. I need to buy it. You don't. Uh, And so a lot of my research is, is, um, as I mentioned, about the vagina microbiome. And what we really know is that you really shouldn't be using any of these products because it washes away the lactobacillus, which is the really good healthy bacteria that we want there, and allows bacteria that we don't want there to overgrow, that causes discharge, irritation, um, and, you know, can be associated with adverse health outcomes. And so I find it really difficult when I see these products on the market, um, because I really think that it's just people trying to capitalize on women. And I've noticed that as well with other things that I've been approached about. So I had a really big um, high street company contact me saying, hey, really want to work with you. Um because we want to make some kind of fragrances targeted around people's menstrual cycle. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? Because that's not something I've ever heard of before. And they were like, you know, we want to kind of like um, talk about how different fragrances are more appealing at different types at times of the cycle. And I said, well, there isn't any evidence for that. And they wrote back and they said, well, it doesn't really matter. Uh, so basically what they're implying was that I would just make stuff up so that they could sell their products. And that's where I think that, yeah, this has
1: really gone wild. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I can totally believe and almost see that email in your inbox because, so they would say, so they would want you to build up some kind of structure whereby, well, at the beginning of when you're during your period, your estrogen and progesterone levels are quite low, um, so therefore you'd be more attracted to rose scents, <laughs> like exactly. which totally, totally, and
0: I just think that's really sad because it's just. First of all, making women over-conscious of their hormones and their menstrual cycle. But also, why should you be told what you want to smell at that time of the month? You know, it's up to you. And yeah. it's not going to impact on your health. But unfortunately, the message is often driven that, you know, you're not, um, you're not taking advantage of your cycle. You're not using your – you're not hacking your hormones, all this kind of thing. And I think that whilst I absolutely want people to listen to their bodies and, and learn their own patterns – I don't think that it should be dictated by the wellness or the beauty industry.
1: Amen. I agree wholeheartedly. In fact, I received a mailer recently for a big a, a big range of um, vaginal health products. And they asked me if I was going to feature it. And I just said, um, a, I don't believe there's any medical science that would suggest that this is a necessary product for any woman to use and B until you market me a deodorizing dick stick. I'm not going to start telling. I think I know what something you mean. Yeah, I think you do. Yeah. <laughs> Enough said. So, um, so actually what you, you mentioned a couple of things then that are, are really interesting to me. and something that I think you're a perfect person to speak to about. You talked about hormone hacking
0: mm. and you
1: talked about listening to your body and being in tune with your body. And I think, it never fails to be useful to speak to somebody with your expertise about the monthly cycle and what to expect. And um, I will just say personally, anecdotally, I uh, I came off the pill a few years ago and I was on it to treat PCOS, which I was Mm -hmm. diagnosed with in my teens. And I came off it simply because I didn't want to be taking artificial hormones anymore. And so since then, I have just tried to be more in tune with my body and it, it pays off. I really believe it pays off to know where you are in your cycle uh, for everything. I, mean, I know you're a keen. You, you love weight training, for example, and exercise. And I think it can definitely pay off. Every now and again, I'll be working out thinking this shouldn't feel this hard. And then I'll think, ah, but. <laughs> yeah, So
0: that's why I think that the menstrual cycle can really come into its own.
1: So in terms of, uh, should we begin on day one of the the period? And in terms of hormone hacking uh, and listening to your body, it'd be really interesting to know, so this might be the time when this is a good thing to try or when you might actually give yourself a a lie-in because you are totally entitled to feel a certain way.
0: Yeah. So I think the first thing to say is that the menstrual cycle is the whole, well, month for most people. Um, so a 28 day cycle means that day one is the day you start your period. And then the 28th day is the day before your next period starts. Because quite a lot of people think if I ask them um, how long is your menstrual cycle, they'll say, oh, about four days. Um, so that's really key to um, for people to understand. And if you thought that as well, please don't think I'm laughing at you because everyone thinks that because our education about periods is so poor. So period 101. So yeah, day one, First day of your period. Uh, and so, on average, that would last about three to five days. Some people, it can be a little bit longer. It's quite common to feel quite tired during your period. And a lot of people think this is because they are losing too much blood and becoming anemic. Now, if you become anemic from heavy periods, you, you would generally feel tired throughout the whole month because your anemia, so low, low hemoglobin levels, low iron levels, as some people say, is continuous. The reason we often feel tired during our period is because oestrogen levels are quite low. Uh, And so that's why it's totally fine to just chill out, relax. Um, But it's not dangerous to do anything in particular when you're having your periods. A lot of people say, oh, is it dangerous to exercise? No. If you want to exercise, go for it. And actually, there are some studies that have shown that exercise can help with period pain. And in particular, when you do exercise all throughout the month often that can also um, reduce the amount of pain that you experience at that time. So after your period has um, finished, then often you will feel um, you might have sort of vaginal dryness. And this is often a common time that people experience um, thrush and bacterial vaginosis. Um, And that's because of the changes in the hormones, meaning that the bacteria has changed a little bit. Often, you can ride it out, and over the next few days, it will go. And then, when we're getting towards the middle of the cycle, so if you're having a 28-day cycle, around about day 14, that's when you're going to ovulate. Around about ovulation, um, you can often feel that you've got very like watery, egg-white discharge, and this often really stresses people out. And I've noticed that since a lot of people have we um, stopped taking the pill over the last few years... They're like, oh, my God, what is this discharge? Because you don't get it when you're on the pill. Because the So the, uh, the combined oral contraceptive pill, which is the one that most people take, which is the 21 days on, seven days off, that stops ovulation. So you won't get that kind of discharge. That's its mechanism of action. Um, it's also the time in the cycle that you probably feel that your appetite might be lowest. Um, so that's something to bear in mind. And then after ovulation, that's when you start to make loads of progesterone. And progesterone is often the thing that makes us um, have PMS symptoms. So where you feel quite sort of like bloated, water retention. So you might feel like, like for example, rings are tighter, um, trousers might get tighter, um, all those kind of things. And also in terms of exercise, this is also the time when we have shown in some studies that people might be slightly better at Um, endurance exercises. So if you want to go on a really long run, some people might find that it's easier at that time. Um, And then assuming that you're not going to get pregnant in this cycle, the progesterone levels drop, and that is what causes the um, period to happen. So over that period of time, over 28 days, your hormones have completely gone up and down and round and all sorts of things have happened. And that is how the menstrual cycle happens so people always talk about i want to balance my hormones the way that your hormones work is by not balancing and by fluctuating because high levels of one hormone will cause another hormone level to drop and increase another hormone level so it's all a very kind of elaborate roller coaster of various hormones all crossing over I think the other really important thing to say is that so estrogen and progesterone are your predominant female hormones, but they don't just work on the ovaries and the, the womb, they work on the brain, um, on the gut, um, on your muscles, all sorts of different um, tissues. And so that's why throughout the menstrual cycle, you'll get so many different symptoms and so many different things going on that it is basically a roller coaster. <laughs> so, I mean, okay, I've talked about a lot of things in that, you know, <laughs> few minutes. And so you might think, well, gosh, where do I go from there? So, if you want to start kind of like getting a little bit in tune with your cycle, the first thing I would say is use a period tracking app. There's lots of really great ones out there. Um, there's one that I contributed to called Moody Month, which is a really interesting um, app, which also um, We'll put loads of information
1: on there about... Um Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: how you might be feeling at particular times of your cycle. Another one that a lot of people really like is called Clue. Um, I don't have a preference, but I do think that that's a really great way of starting to kind of just like work out where you are. And particularly if you think you have a problem, I love it when patients come to me and they're like, can I just get my app out? And I'm like, yes. (laughs) Because it really, really helps. If you want to go to a doctor, first of all, I think going to a doctor is really overwhelming. I personally as a doctor, I find going to another doctor overwhelming. Okay. But you're like, oh my god, I want to tell them all this information. And then we're kind of asking you, like, what's your cycle? Like, when does this happen in your cycle? You can have it all on an app. It's amazing, and yeah. I just think your appointment can be much more streamlined and productive. But so, what you can do is kind of start, um, you know, tracking your cycle and working out. Okay, you know, if there's something in particular that you're wondering, does this have? Is this related to my period? then you can just kind of like start to log. And so, for example, if it's, you know, your sleep, it, often people find that they um, they don't sleep as well um, around certain times of the cycle, particularly around ovulation, your temperature will go up a little bit. Um, progesterone often is quite a calming hormone and can often make people feel more sleepy. Um, so, you know, these that could be something that you're kind of tracking and thinking, okay, Maybe that's a time in the month when I feel like I don't feel like I sleep well. And then to use that to your advantage, what you could do is think, okay, that week is the time when I really need to concentrate on sleep hygiene. That's when I say, no, I'm not going to go out and um, meet my friends in the evening. I mean, that all sounds very abstract these days for us. <laughs> but, you know, you might think, okay. And so that's kind of like where I think that's my version of hormone hacking. It's not yeah. But it's very small little things that you can do to optimize how you run your life. Um, And that's not allowing your hormones to dictate what you do, but using what you do to fit in with what your hormones are doing. Because ultimately, we do need that cycling. And we're not meant to feel the same every day of the month because our hormones are completely different. If you measure your hormones on day one, day seven, day 21, and day, you know, 25 think completely different values and so if you're on a biochemical level a completely different person then the way you function
1: is going to be reasonably different and that's such a such a good point to make because i think you've said the the best thing i think i've ever heard about hormones is that we all talk about balancing our hormones but it's an impossibility because by their very nature they they are a constant <laughs> and they are constantly moving Absolutely. and I think a lot of uh, people who listen to this podcast have articulated, and I'm sure you've heard this, that that they feel that as though their hormones are driving them or are in charge of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, it's a little bit sad in a way, um,
0: because people can be really, really affected by their hormones. Uh, and I think this is another area where maybe as a profession, we haven't really listened to... Um, women as much as we could uh, and so this is the thing that I think people are quite fixated on um, often using you know hormone testing kits and you can get them um, you know I've seen kits where you put your finger and then send it back to them. I think as a doctor working in that field I find it really difficult to um, decipher what's going on just by looking at those numbers and so I think it's really hard as somebody who's maybe not trained in it to you know process that information i think the most important thing is listening to the the symptoms because you could have two people for example who both have horrendous pms okay but you do their hormones and then you get completely different results and so that's where the the numbers aren't really that important it's much more important to listen to what the person is saying and treat their symptoms um, and I think that that is so, so important, and that is where we really need to start this two-way conversation. i I really want to get the message out there that people shouldn't feel afraid to say to their doctor that about how they feel. And I think we are getting much better at talking about sort of mental health in particular. Um, you know, I, I don't think we should feel ashamed to say that you know, actually, some days of the month I really hate myself and I feel really depressed and really down and I I think that you should be allowed to say that and you shouldn't be you shouldn't be sort of like disregarded as like a hormonal mess that's how you feel and and you know there's something um, called PMDD so it's premenstrual um, dysphoric disorder and that is a very very severe form of of PMS but actually you know it's estimated that about five to ten percent of of women in the population get this uh, and so I mean I've seen plenty of patients who have this and, and you know there's taken them a long time to really feel that they can talk to someone or maybe they've spoken to a doctor and they've been like yeah but, yeah, but that's just that's hormones and that's PMS and it'll settle down and well you know that's their experience and you know they're just having that 10-minute conversation with you but this is something that they have to go through every month and you know completely it ruins relationships some people you know it causes so much problem with their job their education and you know i've seen patients who I, I just this one girl that sticks in my mind and she was great the way she spoke about it because you know i've learned so much from patients and particularly from patients on social media as well because i think it's often really difficult to say face to face to a doctor what you really think often um and that's also why I like to have that kind of chatty vibe in my consultations. But she said to me, she said um, she was so lovely and pleasant and really happy. And she said, yeah, so um, about two weeks ago, that was when I was having my worst time. You know, I just wanted to kill everyone. I wanted to kill myself. And she went through that every month. And I think that, you know, she, she was so calm and uh, you know smiling when she said it. But that, I'm seeing her at a good time in her cycle, and to actually feel that dark that you want to kill yourself and you want to kill everyone around you, and that happens every month, that's terrible. And that is why, you know, we, we can't just have this kind of like, oh, you're hormonal thing. Yeah, okay, sometimes you're just hormonal. It's nothing too major. But when it's actually really dictating your life, that's, that's something really important that we need to know about.
1: And I think you touched on something there as well. We've because of the demographic of this podcast, we talk or have covered perimenopause a lot, which mm. can obviously be something that can go on for an incredibly long time and is characterized by changes in hormones. And therefore, if somebody has navigated their adult life and sort of felt, yeah, my cycle's fairly regular, normal, whatever you, you know, normal in inverted commas, and then all of a sudden they start to feel a certain way and then they go to the GP and they get antidepressants. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, I think that's the other thing is that
0: I don't think there's often a a good understanding of, you know, what's going on. and uh, and that's why we need to have these more sort of open conversations about it. And, And I think it is quite sad when people are just kind of like given antidepressants and actually for a lot of these people, you know, um, thinking about people who are having mood disturbance in the perimenopause, um, in the menopause, and also with PMS and PMDD, often actually um, things like CBT um, and talking therapies can be all they need and not not actually a medication. Um, And, you know, I think, again, that that's something that maybe we're not really trained in a lot and i think that again that's something that i've definitely learned a lot about um sort of networking with different healthcare professionals on social media and now i'm making it sound like i'm basically a doctor trained in social media but you know honestly <laughs> it really like open your eyes to what other people can do um and it's something that i I've, I've you know referred a lot of patients for and they've actually seen a massive um improvement and you know they didn't need any medication it's just you know having the ability to acknowledge that there is something there and and work out how you can deal with those um, those emotions. Of course, taking medication is not a problem. And absolutely, for some people, that is the right thing to do. Um, but I think it's difficult when people feel that they're going to be dismissed and just shoved on antidepressants mm. or shoved on hormonal contraception that they maybe don't want.
1: Yeah. Or as uh, a lot of listeners, I didn't realise until recently, a lot of listeners have been denied HRT
0: yeah I think that's really difficult um and yeah that's something that I mean there's some really great people out there and I know you you had um Dr Louise um Mm. podcast talking about um uh perimenopause uh and I think that you know we need more people like her you know speaking out and there's some other great doctors who, who do speak out about um menopause and I think that You know, there's a role in educating other healthcare professionals because that's often where a lot of it comes from. But then the media has a lot to to say about that as well. And I think that, you know, you can read the newspaper one day and it tells you that HRT is going to kill you. And the next day it's like, well, HRT saves lives. And You know, it's so difficult and it's so individual. And that's why I think it's really important to have that sort of like one-on-one conversation and not sort of necessarily read all the headlines and take that as verbatim. Um, But, yeah, it's a bit difficult when your doctor is maybe denying you what may be something really useful and and really crucial for you so it's a difficult one
1: yeah and then what i've noticed happens is people go online and they ask questions i have a forum and one of the things and listeners will know this because i always jump in and try to sort of minimize this kind of thing happening but somebody will go in and write a post and say i feel that my hormones are ruling my life does anyone have any advice and somebody will just write and this isn't just my forum obviously my most excellent listeners are brilliant people But there's definitely a culture online of just a one-word answer of, I don't know, yams. And I I go in and I say, would you mind maybe sharing a little bit of your experience and contextualise that so the original poster can understand how you benefited and how you came to find out about it and what have you. But then equally, I still kind of think, oh, we'd need a doctor to weigh in on this.
0: So this is the thing. I think that... um I feel 50-50 about
1: people sharing their um, stories online.
0: I think it's really, really helpful. And I really appreciate that people do take a lot of time to share their own stories. And it's, you know, a lot of the time, things that are really difficult for them to talk about. um, And it's amazing. And, you know, obviously, I've learned so much from hearing about so many people's stories. But then I think we always, you know, we can take it too much to heart and think, right, well, it worked for that person, so it's got to work for me. And so I think certainly the thing that I've seen that's caused me a bit of anguish over the years is about hormonal contraception. Yeah, so I mean, I think first things first, I have never worked for any kind of pharmaceutical company. I have no affiliations with any kind of brand. Um, so yeah, that's my declaration of uh, conflict of interest, so I have none. Um, but There are, I've noticed a lot of people who are increasingly sort of spreading this sort of line that we shouldn't be putting hormones into our body. Um, And if you do, you're causing yourself damage, um, you're not making the most of your cycle, um, and you're potentially causing um, complications for the future. And I find that a little bit difficult because I have to say that I have a lot of patients who would not be able to go about their daily lives without using hormonal contraception. Um, So in particular, there's a lot of patients, for example, who have endometriosis for whom we use hormonal contraception. because So endometriosis means that you've got cells that are similar to the lining of the womb outside. um, So they can grow on the ovaries, they can grow on the skin inside the tummy, um, on the bladder, on the bowel. And what that does is it bleeds in the same way that the lining does every month, so your period comes out of your vagina, but that blood cannot go anywhere. And so what it does is it causes really, really severe pain and irritation, and ultimately, over time, it can cause scar tissue to form. And that can cause chronic pain um, and can um, cause problems with getting pregnant for a lot of women. Uh, And so what we do is we use hormones to kind of suppress the lining outside the womb, so that we don't get this bleed um, inflammation and scarring cycle, um, so it causes people to be able to actually, you know, go out of the house on the day that they're having a period because they're not having excruciating pain. Um, and you know, it, it's not for everyone, but for a lot of people, it really, really makes a massive difference to their life. We also have people who, for example, have really heavy periods people with fibroids, um, and then obviously a lot of people with um, polycystic ovarian syndrome and PCOS, as you already mentioned, um, who use it to make sure that they are having regular bleeds, because in that group of women, we ideally like people to have, we call it a bleeder season, so about four bleeds a year, so that we're getting rid of that lining of the womb, so that it's not getting super, super thick. Um, because then there is a small chance that it can become um, abnormal, and by abnormal, I mean um, start to get precancerous changes. So, I think we also have to remember that a lot of people just want really reliable contraception, and I think that that's that, absolutely fine. You know, it's it's great; it works really well, and it's pretty convenient. So, I think it's really difficult for those people who are really happy with their contraception, because then you know, I like it that. People are interested in their health and want to make sure that they are doing the best they can. But it's really difficult when they're like, hold on a second, I've been taking this for like 10 years. Am I doing the wrong thing? What's going on here? And so, again, I think that is all about the conversation that you have with your doctor about using particular medications. Um, and, you know, if you're happy on it and the doctor has no issues, you don't have any um, health problems that have cropped up in that time, it's absolutely fine to carry on. On on the contrary, there are people who say, you know, what I've actually taken the pill and I feel really depressed now. It's you know interfered with my mental health. Um, I've got terrible acne now. There's lots of different side effects that can um, happen from using the hormonal contraception. But I think that we are just seeing so many bad things and not really hearing those stories of people who are really helped by it. The other thing is that I would say. Thing you never hear in the newspaper is that actually using, particularly the combined oral contraceptive pill, reduces your lifetime risk of getting ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer, and colorectal cancer. And they are, you know, three really major cancers. um, And, you know, the, the reduction actually continues for at least 20 years after stopping using the pill. So I'm not saying that necessarily you should start using it for that purpose. But you know, this is another message that I think often people feel a little bit relieved to hear when they think that they're doing something bad for their health. And what also causes me problems is when I might see a patient in clinic um, and I want to, for example, recommend the myrina coil to them. So that's the coil that has hormones in. Um, and it is really good if you want to make your periods lighter And anecdotally, I would say it's probably the contraceptive of choice for a lot of gynecologists. Um, Everyone seems to love it. A lot of GPs as well seem to have it. Is that
1: the one where one of the things that people like about it is it's localized? So the hormones are literally just localized to the uterus?
0: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so the way in which it um, exerts its contraceptive effect Is that it it, um, thickens the mucus so that the um, sperm cart gets in, but also it keeps the lining super thin so that even if um, a very, very energetic sperm got through, it shouldn't be able to um, implant. Uh, And so, yeah, that's how it keeps your periods a bit lighter and often a little bit less painful. And so I find it really difficult often when I talk to a patient and they say, no, I don't want that because my friend had it and it was awful. And that's quite difficult. Like, OK, so you're now saying that based on one person's experience, you don't want to have something that might potentially really, really help you. Um, and so it, it becomes a little bit difficult because you really, you know, I, I don't ever want anyone to feel that I've forced them into using any kind of treatment or having any kind of operation or something. But I do want people to be open minded and, and, and realize that one person's experience can be completely different from your own. I think the other thing that people don't realize is that it's not just the pill. So there's actually about 20 different kinds of contraceptive pill that we can prescribe in this country. uh, And they all have slightly different ingredients. Um, So they all have slightly different um, amounts of synthetic estrogen. And then they have different amounts and different types of synthetic progesterone. So just because one pill didn't suit you, doesn't mean that the pill is complete no no for you. Um, the other thing is that your hormones change as you go through your life. So, what your hormones are like when you're 16 will be completely different to what your hormones are like at 26 and 36. So, a pill that you liked when you were 16 actually may not suit you at all later on. And the same the other way. So, a pill that you like then actually might be fine for you now Uh, and so i think that we do sometimes have to be our own guinea pig and i you know that maybe is difficult for people to hear but i also think that's why as a doctor i really want to listen to my patient's experiences and you know take that on board and if you do have awful side effects then you know that's something that we need to listen to uh because there may be alternatives that we can offer
1: it's so interesting. And what, what I keep hearing from you through everything that you've said is it, it really is about the individual. So there's mm. nothing selfish about understanding who you are and how you function, yeah. and then asking if you need it for assistance that is right for you. And I remember uh, speaking to someone ages and ages and ages ago who said, We were talking about the pill. Mm. And much like you, I've had that conversation with so many friends. I was on Dianet when I was first prescribed in my uh, teens. And then various other things. And people would always say, whenever they would say, what are you on for your hormones? And I would say, or Diana or Marvelon, or Yasmin in the end. And there would always be someone who said, oh, I hate that. That made me gain weight or I got this or what have you. And then somebody said, but it's like, how do you take your tea? Do you have sugar in yours? You might have a naturally sweet tooth. You don't. They're not going to... You can't, nobody takes their tea exactly the same way. So don't take your hormones the same way.
0: It's so true. Some people like tea, some people like coffee.
1: Mm-hmm. It's, you know,
0: and that's the thing. I think that there's no one perfect contraception. And, and you know, as much as I'm a feminist, I do really believe that, unfortunately, the reason why there's no perfect contraception is because our female bodies are designed to get pregnant and have babies. And, and so, you know, you are kind of trying to stop something that your body's designed to do. And that's okay. But that is why there isn't really a perfect way. And everyone's going to find something that they like or that they can tolerate. And it just takes a bit of trial and error sometimes.
1: And actually trial and error is no hardship because you've also spoken before and it really hit home with me about how actually access to contraception and having a choice is such a privilege.
0: Oh my God. Yeah, so much. I mean, I, I work, um, on the, um, outskirts of London. Well, not really the outskirts, I suppose it's still centralish London, but you know, I work with a lot of women who are having, well, I once delivered somebody's 20th baby. Um, yeah, I know, right? And you, so I actually had a really, really fascinating conversation with this lady. Um, so, I just I had to put a cannula in her hand um, before she went to theatre and so we were just I just started chatting to her I said wow you've got 19 children and it's really sad you know she said to me she said oh most women don't say that to me most women think that I'm really stupid I said no that's that's terrible um Yeah. And it was just really interesting. And the conversation, I mean, I mean, I was fascinated. So we were like BFFs. And um, I was asking her, like, my God, what do you make for dinner? Because every day is like a dinner party in her house. (laughs) And she's like, yeah, I've got two washing machines and they're always on. And I was thinking, wow. And I moan about like doing laundry twice a week. Um, But, you know, it was really fascinating. And unfortunately, this woman was somebody who was not empowered to seek out contraception. Um, You know, for her, having 20 children was, you know, not a bad thing. She probably looked at me and thought, well, what's wrong with her? She hasn't got any. Uh, You know, it's all about what we grow up thinking is normal. But I see so many women, uh, you know, this is in 2020 in London, people who don't have any access to contraception. Because, you know, I think that we forget that for some women, you know, taking that time to call up your GP and go for an appointment is just not a thing. They may not be able to speak English. They may be, um, you know, there's an amazing number of people who don't know what contraception is. Some people I speak to, um, because we offer postnatal contraception um, when people are discharged from hospital, and they're like, no, no, I don't want my tubes tied. And I'm like, no, no, there's, there's other things we can do. And they're like, oh, really? Like what? And so, you know, and also it can be a cultural thing, you know, a lot of people, for cultural and religious reasons, um, don't want to use contraception. Um, it's actually quite sad the kind of conversations that I do have with patients who maybe do want to use contraception, but their partner will not allow it. So I just think the fact that we have all these options is so incredible, and I just think that we do, yeah, take it for granted that we can, you know, access them and you know, this is in London, you know, forget what's going on in the rest of the world where women literally die because they don't have access to contraception and healthcare during pregnancy and labour. So yeah, we're so, so lucky. Uh, And so that is something that I just always want people to have in their back of their mind as well.
1: I always try to uh, close an episode or at least uh, have a point in the conversation where hopefully listeners, if they feel that a lot of this has resonated or they feel that they've had a light bulb moment during, uh, while listening to this conversation, some action plans, some action points of what to do next. And you're already, you've been such an incredible resource, but I wouldn't mind, I I wouldn't, if you wouldn't mind, it would be great if you could just say, if someone's listening to this and they thought, I don't really know my normal and my normal, but they now understand their normal, doesn't mean that it has to be the same as everyone else. I feel like maybe I do need to go and speak to somebody, but I, because I don't know my normal yet, I need to obviously get on a, a course. What would you say the, the sort of most important action, action points are for them to move forward with? Okay, so
0: I think, yeah, know your normal is the first most important thing because that's when you can, you know, things might be normal now for you, but then it will just help you to identify in the future if there's a problem, And then also, I think it's really important to just really say that you don't have to know what the diagnosis is before you go and see a doctor. I feel a lot of patients say, you know, I really like to explore why people have taken a long time to come and see me. And a lot of the time they say, I didn't really know what the problem was, so I didn't Go and see anyone but that's what we're there for that's what we're trained for and also coming to um see a doctor doesn't mean that you are signing yourself up for any kind of medication or surgery sometimes just having a chat through it can be super super helpful having that chat can be really scary so first of all use language that you're comfortable with i don't expect you to um be saying the word vagina if you don't feel comfortable with it i don't you don't have to know the difference between the vagina and the vulva i mean i love drawing diagrams of that kind of thing. And I have a lovely diagram of a uh, vulva on my Instagram page, which you can to. but you you don't have to. It's like how I don't know what the hell I'm talking about with my mortgage advisor. I just use the words that I know. So think of it in the same way. Take a list is a really good um, thing as well, because, you know, as I say, it gets a bit overwhelming. You've got a relatively short amount of time and you want to try and get through things. I think that's really helpful. Um, And yeah, using an app to track can be super, super helpful. And then also just talk about it. I think that more and more people are starting to feel really comfortable um, with talking to their friends and family. And I get so happy when patients tell me, I just spoke to a few friends and I realized it's not normal. So that's why I came. And I think, yeah, that is it.
1: That is what we need. Yeah, it's so true. And you're just making me think that I remember and I must have been 13 And I was at school, and I think it was either my first or my second period. And I do you remember back in the day the big proper sanitary pads that were really thick? Yeah, I put it in backwards. when? (laughs) I put it in backwards because I didn't really understand. And I flooded, and I was so embarrassed that I didn't tell anyone. But I wrote it in my 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 diary, and then one of my friends in my class read it, and they were laughing at me about the fact I'd written I flooded. Well, and so no, I know. But now I just sort of think, actually, I love it when I'm chatting with my friends and somebody says something like, "God, I'm having the worst period," and and they sort of go into whatever the detail might be about it, and you go, "Oh, yeah, we've all been there," and it just makes you relax.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much comfort in knowing that you're not alone when you're going through a lot of these things, and and a lot of things that we do experience in our cycles are completely normal and and not dangerous. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that often you'd like, Oh my God, am I the only freak who's dealing with this? And, and, you know, you start to Google things and obviously Google always tells you you've got cancer and you're infertile. And so there's just so many disconcerting things that you can read online, but you, you, you just can't get the same, you know, it's just so important to go and speak to someone. It's not the same when you Google
1: it. Yeah, and Jen made a really good point that's really stuck with me and I, I'm I'm sure you would agree is that if you are wanting to seek information online about something, go to a website that is dedicated to that and use their search function yeah. because it's the difference between going into a room full of experts in that area and asking a question or just going out into Oxford Street and going, does anyone know anything about totally. That's the difference. Totally. Um, Do you have any, do you have any uh, other than your social media, which obviously I will be directing people to, and I'll be putting the link to your book in the show notes, but do you have any suggested resources for anyone who maybe wants to just uh, make a, make a little foray online into gathering information or how to, how to maybe speak to their GP if they feel maybe this is a second or third visit back and they feel actually, I, I really do want to take this forward. I know you've said it's this, but how, how they can move things forward.
0: Yeah, so online resources. So I really like Patient UK. Um, It's written by um, doctors in the UK. It's really good, really reliable, really thorough. Um, And they have articles which are specifically for patients, but then they have some that it says – It's for healthcare professionals, but you can read it too, so if you're super, super interested. Also, the World College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has some patient information leaflets, um, so they're really good for talking about particularly pregnancy-related things and also certain types of operations that we do in gynecology um, and different conditions. I find them really helpful and really reliable. Um, And then, yeah, if you feel that you're not getting anywhere with your doctor, I think I think the most important thing is really to reinforce how something is impacting on your life. I think that's something that we don't always get across. And that often will make people be like, oh, okay, actually, this person can't go to work. So that's something a little bit different. And then also just say, you know, do you think it would be useful to go and see a gynaecologist? Or just say, look, I'm worried about X, Y, and Z. So something I always do that we got taught at medical school is to ask about patients' ideas, concerns, and expectations. So what, so Emma, what do you think is going on? Um, What are you, what are you worried about? So that's your concerns. What are you concerned that it might be? And what are you hoping that I can do for you? Mm. And so lots of doctors will use that, Um, lots won't, but they are the kind of, pieces of information that you want to be getting across to your doctor so that they can give you the kind of information that you need because lots of patients will think oh it's this and it's all right to be like well no no no, it's not that but the best conversation is when you can say it's not that and this is why I know it's not that's much more comforting mm-hmm. you should be able to have those kind of conversations and I think it's okay to say why do you think it's not that if they don't volunteer that kind of information, you need to make sure that you're reassured. And the worst thing for me as a doctor is somebody walking out of the door and I think, didn't quite get to the bottom of what they wanted or what they're worried about. That's really frustrating for me. Uh, And so that's why I always use those three questions. And generally speaking, you kind of get to what people want to know and what they're worried about. That's just so important. So yeah, try and get those pieces of information if your doctor doesn't ask you.
1: So idea, ideas, concerns, and expectations. Yeah. so you say, look, I think I've got this.
0: I'm really worried that it might be cancer. And I'm really hoping that you can prescribe me this medicine, refer me for this operation, let me go and speak to Sensei. That, that kind of thing, that's, that's really crucial. To really... It has to be a two-way conversation. It shouldn't be you going to report your problem and the doctor saying this is what we're going to do. It has to be, it has to be both people.
1: It's a really productive way to have any kind of conversation, really, isn't it, when you think about it, if if you want to get to a particular point. Um, This has been so, so helpful, Anita. Thank you so, so much. I could honestly, there are another, I've got half a page of other things that we could talk about, but I think what I will do is invite you back to really drill down into some other things and maybe get some listener feedback on the things that we'd like to really discuss with you. Yeah, we
0: need to talk about what people want. (laughs)
1: that's my thing though you know i i mean i could talk
0: all day about things that i think are important but what's the point if it's not important to a a patient or a woman or you know an individual It,
1: it has to be relevant to them it's not about me oh my goodness I am so cross that we are not in the same room and that we are in the middle of a pandemic because I just want to hold you now. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's so nice. Um, it's brilliant. So, yes, let's arrange for you to come back. But genuinely, this has been so, so wonderful and so, so helpful. And it's been so lovely to, to get to know you as well. Thanks. Um, listeners, the links to Anita and everything that we've discussed, uh, including those brilliant resources you just mentioned, will be in the show notes, which you can which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. But Dr. Anita Mitra, thank you so much for joining me. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed that episode and found it helpful and useful. If you want to get in touch with me, then please do email me at thebeautypodcastgmail.com at or you can slide into my DMs on social media where I am at Emma Guns. If you want to speak to me and thousands of other fellow most excellent listeners of this podcast, then simply go to the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode, and click the link to join the Facebook forum. We're all there. We can't wait for you to join us. We're having great chats in there already about so many different subjects I can't even list them here because it would be another hour-long chat but please we do want to see you there and you just have to answer a few questions agree to the forum rules and you will be welcomed in with open arms thank you so much for your time thank you so much for listening stay well and I will see you on the next one